Welcome, listeners, to the third season of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and your podcast host. Tune in and join me as I chat with authors writing cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find explicit violence, sex, or gore. You will find intricate plots, engaging characters, and brilliant writing. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Lynn Truss, author of The Constable Twitten Mysteries, joins me in the corner today to chat about her latest, Murder by Milk Bottle. Welcome, Lynn. Oh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you. Murder by Milk Bottle is your third Constable Twitten mystery. Uh, would you tell us about the constable and his colleagues and what they're up to? Okay, yeah. The uh, series is set in Brighton on the south coast of England in 1957. Um, very specific date, and I sort of researched that date very thoroughly. Um, and there are four main characters, really. Um, it, was, it did come out of a radio comedy that I wrote about, about them all. And, um, but I felt as though I, I'd never developed and dis, you know, sort of delved them um, as much as I wanted to. So uh, when it came to the idea of writing books, I was very excited. So Constable Twitten himself is 22. He's extremely bright. He knows a lot of long words and he knows a lot of deep concepts. Uh, but he's slightly on the scale, I think, really. He's slightly on the, uh, on the what do they call it? Asperger's <laughs> or autistic spectrum disorder? Yeah, the spectrum. He's slightly on the spectrum, sorry. And um, anyway, he's, he's come fresh and very keen into the police. He works for Inspector Steen, who is, has been one of these people who just is very lucky in life, always gets a lot of glory for not doing very much and is actually not very bright, but um, is very much in charge at the police station. And there's Sergeant Brunswick, who is uh, slightly defeated by life. He's only in his late 30s, but he's, you know, he had a war career. He's now back in Brighton. And although he loves the idea of, of catching criminals, his main thing he wants to do is to go undercover amongst them and fool them, which never works. And, um, of course, they will see straight through him. And he usually gets shot in the leg as um, whenever, <laughs> whenever he sort of hopes to, uh, to expose some plot he often gets shot in the leg. And then they have their station char lady, uh, Mrs. Groins, who um, is a sort of cockney character, as you might find in a film, but um, at the same time is a criminal mastermind. He's actually running a great deal of the crime in Brighton um, from the police station. So um, the, the sort of interaction between all the characters is, to, you know, is, is quite... Um, is quite fruitful, I think. So that's, um, so this, yes, as you say, this was the third one. Now you mentioned that uh, the date was very significant. Can you talk about the, the significance of it or, or would that give anything away? Well, 1957, um, I, I sort of honed in on that and I'm not quite sure why. I was born in 55, so I'm quite elderly. And 57, I don't remember exactly, but I do remember, I suppose, the late 50s in general. And it just seems to me like a, a sort of very good date in that it's, you know, quite significantly after the war. It's, you no, know, there's no side of the 60s. It's 
it's a time when actually for working class people in Britain, it was actually a very good time. There was massive, you know, it was total employment. There were holidays. People went to the seaside uh, as in family groups. There was a sort of joy, I think, uh, in the 50s. And, you know, I was, when I was growing up, we thought of the 50s as rather bleak, black and white sort of period. But actually, you know, when you look at it, it was actually a very colourful time with a lot of um, enjoyment of life. And I think that's what I like it to have as the background to the books, is to have this sort of seaside place that is a bit, you know, you ha do have um, a lot of crime going on in the background. It's quite tawdry. But at the same time, there is, um, you know, pleasure seeking going on. And that's a sort of rather nice, a rather nice background to have. And I love the, the language of that period. Um, so it's very, you know, it's great to research films and, and radio and all that to, to, to home in on, on those, on the sort of language of that time. So, and for this book, say, I spent a lot of time going through archives and newspapers for actual stories of things that are happening around uh, a bank holiday, uh, a sort of national holiday at the beginning of August. And I did incorporate things that I found, you know, there were, there were stories that I found that were in the newspapers. So I thought, well, yes, this is, that gives me a plot, that gives me something. And at the same time, I know, it doesn't matter to anyone else, but I know that it's, it's actually linked exactly to that time. So I, I really like that. And um, I'm moving the stories on you know, you'll have, you'll know all about this writing a series that you, you do have to make a decision about how much you will allow time to pass between each story. Because in my case, I know that the relative ages of the characters, the fact that Twitten is very young, I don't, I can't move them forward a year at a time because he will get to be, you know, 28 in no time. <laughs> and a 28 year old who's always saying, but sir, you know, trying to get his voice heard would be a bit creepy you know it's better that he stays quite young so I'm moving everything forward a, a month at a time so um so that there's enough time for the last case to sort of settle and and for them to have the energy to deal with the next one but their basic relationships to each other and their ages and so on stays more or less the same you know what what challenges did you face trying to make life in the 1950s seaside town relatable to modern audiences or did you not worry about that and just write the story and figure modern readers would understand i i don't know if i did make it very relatable i think is there is there would be a certain element of you know people having to make a bit of a leap to as they would if they were seeing an old film or something and there will be words they don't quite recognize or whatever um, because it, I want it to seem authentic. I want it to have, I mean, I, I don't allow, I think, I don't allow much, you know, really modern phraseology, but in my part, obviously as the author, my narration is, is very direct to the reader. So I think that, I don't think the reader should feel in any way excluded because I'm, I'm, I'm writing it, you know, straight into their, into the reader's mind. You know, I, I don't, I don't want them to be any problem. But, but in terms of the mores of the time, I think it's, it, you have to be consistent with them uh, and, and allow people to be slightly surprised, you know, that, oh yes, of course, in those days they wouldn't know about this. Um, um, it's, all, it's such a lovely thing to, to set something at a time that isn't today 
because especially crime as we know crime now is is so technological you know the solving of crime in tv things is all about you know tracing tracking people's phones and their phone calls and so on well you know you can't do that in 1957 um and so quite often they're stymied by the simplest things because they you know they haven't been into the office for a bit and the phone's been ringing and nobody's answered it you know that's the sort of in a comic crime novel you can you know of that period you can you can get away with that so i i really like that i think it gives you a lot of freedom um from the point of view of plot and um yeah i just i think it's it doesn't things don't have to be related to i mean i i assume that the reader is a modern person who is going to think oh well that's different or i remember when it was like that or i like to imagine a time before everyone had a mobile phone so i i think it's um it's a it's a pleasure and a, and a privilege to write something that's set in a different period and something else that's uh, slightly different is your protagonist twitten is a constable now yeah. people like me who kind of feast on brit box and acorn are used to uh, detective inspectors and detective chief inspectors taking uh, <laughs> yes. But your inspector is actually to steal a word from Katrina McPherson, kind of a numpty. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so why, why did you choose to make your your hero a, and I am making air quotes when I say lowly, a lowly constable? Oh, well, it's just lovely because no one's listening to him, you know. So he's, I mean, he's not always right, to be honest. He, he, to be frank, he's, he's, he's just the cleverest person generally in the room. So it's very nice to identify with him and to know how he is thinking about things. But of course, the, the, order of, the order of intelligence really goes up from the inspector. He's the sort of the, really the stupidest person in the room. Then the sergeant is, is sort of a bit more clever about, about crime. Twitten is really clever, but in an intellectual kind of way. And the person who really understands everything that's going on and is a super, super brain is the char lady. So it is, it is a completely reverse of, of their status. So it, it goes in complete reverse order to their status, is, is who is who's the cleverest. Um, and I, I find that quite delightful. And actually you do find that a lot in comic, in, in many comic sort of um, classics, like we have Dad's Army or something. You know, the person in charge is, is often, you know, he has loads of, loads of arrogance and, and, and possibly a class advantage. Um, Steam sounds quite posh, uh, but at the same time, really doesn't know what's going on and i think that's quite it's quite quite commonplace really in in comedy but as you say not not in crime not so much perhaps in crime fiction so that's rather lovely to have um in all the books i think so far twitten has come closest to sorting things out but there are always key moments when he talks to mrs groins and mrs groins says but look at the method look at the way this person was killed that would you know, that person might have a motive. He might be very clever and work that out, but that sort of person would not commit that kind of crime in that way, because she knows because she is that sort of, you know she is a criminal, and she knows. Um, so that's a so it's rather lovely in a way that uh, he's not he's not uh, omniscient. He's just as uh, intellectually precocious. Um, in the book I've just written, which hasn't doesn't come out till next year. Uh, he, you know, his research, he's been doing some research and it all comes out, you know, it's all, it's all shown, uh, it's all goes 
into the plot in a way. But he, um, no one wants to listen to him at all because they all find him so tedious. He's always trying to, he's always trying to educate them. He's always saying, this is interesting, sir. And at that point, they always switch off. So that, of course, is probably quite a British thing. <laughs> people never want to listen to bright people. And I bet, you know, if one wanted to go deeply psychological about it, I'm sure it goes back to my childhood of being someone who was always saying, oh, this is interesting. And they were wanting, no one wanted me to talk about it. I think that happens in America too. I can think of several people that are always uh, kind of showing mm -hmm. how smart they are and you really just kind of want to push them down a flight of stairs, <laughs> which you don't do because that would be the jail, but you think about it. The thing to do with him though is to keep him endearing, which I really hope I've done with Swinton. I think he's, he's, he's flawed enough um, and, and he suffers enough really that I think we can identify with him and care about him. Um, I know my editor loves Twitten. You know, she's mm -hmm. like, oh, good for Twitten. <laughs> we, we, sort of, we sort of care about him. Uh, I'll confess, Mrs. Groin is my favorite character. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm very glad. <laughs> uh, speaking of Twitten and Groin's, uh, you, you do have a very quirky bunch of, of characters and you put them in some very comic situations. So is it fair to describe uh, Murder by Milk Bottle and the other books in the series as, as farce or satire? Yeah, well, not satire really, I don't think, but definitely farce, yes. There's a farcical structure. Um, sometimes people ask me to, you know, to talk about writing, and, and I realise after a while that I only, what I'm describing really is farce, because I, I always say, you know, everything you, <clears throat> you know, I, well, how the way I write these books is often just at the first two or three or four chapters are pure invention, you know, coming up with more and more and more hairs, you know, setting various hairs running, <clears throat> with the intention of gradually folding these all these sort of different strands together until you reach a dramatic and funny, hopefully, conclusion. And that isn't how all books are written. <laughs> it actually isn't how all books are written, not even crime novels. But um, it's, become, it's become my methodology and it's become something I love to see in other people's work and in, on television and so on, that, you, you know, that every single strand of this is there for a reason and and I often as I start writing I don't know what the reason is and I I enjoy not knowing what the reason is but I will make a good reason for it by the end and bring it bring everything together <clears throat> but that really is a definition of farce and so I think it has to be said they are farcical there's there is always a you know a, a pretty big climax with um everything coming together and and you know a riot or something you know something quite big happens uh, towards the end that brings every strand together so yeah i, I would definitely accept farce as a as a uh, as a description and i have to ask where did the name peregrine wilberforce come from <laughs> I don't know. well peregrine peregrine is such a uh, you know it's a very unusual name i mean um and is it, I'm not sure if it's P.G. Woodhouse's first name, is it? Is it Peregrine? I'm not sure now, now I say it. Perhaps it isn't. But anyway, Peregrine is just sort of a very, very posh name. And Wilberforce, I just thought it shows that his parents are, you know, are sort of have his, no history and are, you know, um, um, I don't know, have, have sort of nice values. So they, they've put that, they've given him that name. There's no, his, there's no family connection to Wilberforce, I don't think. But I just like, um, I like people to have um, slightly comic, <laughs> comic but significant sort of middle names. 
but no one only only one person ever calls him Peregrine. Um, everyone else calls him Twitten. Twitten, incidentally, yeah. is a, is the word for in in Brighton. When I started the whole thing, um, um, I used Brighton centric name so there is a steam in bright brighton's the center of brighton by the pier is a, a lamp is a, a form what do, you, what do you call it a sort of a top topological place um called the steam and it's just it was probably the stone or something in uh, years ago and it's just so people who live in brighton will say well i'll see you at the steam brunswick comes from the fact that the house of hanover you know is is a sort of thing in the history of Brighton that the Prince Regent built the pavilion and Carolina Brunswick was a Hanoverian <coughs> consort and so lots of Brunswick names around and uh, Twitten is, is an alleyway it's the, it's the local name for an alley in Sussex um, they around the country they all have different names but if you had an alley by the church it would be the church Twitten is the um, is that and groins of course you know are in the sea and a very treacherous so um, you do have signs saying, beware of the groins. <laughs> so that's why Mrs. Groins got her name. And, and how did you settle on milk bottles as a murder weapon? <laughs> well, this was in the research, in the research last year, um, in the papers, I just was starting to get quite fascinated by the amount of milk marketing that was going on in 1957. <clears throat> there was a famous slogan in Britain um, that was coined in 1957, which was drink a pint of milk a day. And it was drink a pint of milk a day. And um, it, was, so it was very modern and striking. And it really caught on. And it ran for years, drink a pint of milk a day. It was a, um, but when I started, I couldn't help noticing there were all these beauty contests that were connected to dairy, print, you know, the dairy industry. There were... Um, there had been a dairy festival in Brighton with floats that went on for miles and cows and loads and milk marketing was this massive thing that was going on and there was someone called the milk girl there was someone who was called the milk girl who I think people did know her real name but she was known as the milk girl and she was on posters she was on TV on advertisements and she would go and open things open milk bars open um uh you know be a beauty contest and so on so i it all started to come together that milk was a bit of <laughs> was definitely going to become a theme so that's i didn't know i think as i started that i was going to have people kill with milk bottles but it happened as you know in the first chapter so so it quickly came upon me that that was what was going to happen that someone was going to be killed with milk bottles and it would be the murder would in some way be connected to milk and um, this enormous amount of milk marketing uh, that was going on. So, um, so it's sort of, you know, it was a natural, natural progression from all the reading. It was, it was a, it was very satisfying. It's very nice when that sort of thing all comes together. It's, it's, it's a very unique murder weapon. I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's a regular <laughs> midsummer, midsummer murders worthy murder weapon. <laughs> it is, but I, I have no idea if it would work. Of course, I haven't tested it. <laughs> I tried to kill someone with a milk bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know I've, I've fallen down on the job there by not trying it out <laughs> but to, to to switch up just a little bit um you also wrote eat shoots and leaves which was mm -hmm. the, the book that made punctuation cool again 
So I had experience of writing a nonfiction grammar book compared to that of writing farcical mystery fiction. Well, uh, in the writing of it, uh, I think it was. I really enjoyed writing each of these. It was. It was a. It was a. It was such at the time. Of course, we had no no notion that it would be a bestseller, um, or indeed would sell any, any copies at all. And it was a very modest little book for a very modest publisher for a modest amount of money and and I had a very short time amount of time to write it actually so I went at it with enormous gusto and and really really just sort of dived into it read lots spent day and night just going through books looking for examples trawling the internet looking for things and writing 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 with enormous amounts of enthusiasm and I think the tone of the book, you know, is really is quite similar, actually, to um, to the crime novels. I think there's the same amount of, of enjoyment that uh, comes across. The experience of of publishing it was so extraordinary. I mean, it was so out of the blue that it that it caught on so, and that people loved it so much. It was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful thing to happen. From my point of view, I just. I'd, always, I'd written about many subjects in my life and I'd also always preferred to write fiction. So I, there was a danger, a very serious danger at some point, that I could be, that's all I would ever be know, ever do. You know, it might it'll always be all I'd ever be known for, but it would, at one point, it looked like it would, all, would be all I'd ever do. And I didn't want that. Um, so I sort of pulled out, really. <laughs> um, I could have written more books on on language or grammar but I'm not actually you see um a, a grammarian I said so in the book I'm not um I've never studied it I have just been a journalist and done a lot of proofreading and and I was interested in punctuation and I loved finding out learning about it and I loved giving examples and work and showing how you know you could you could mispunctuate something in order and, and end up with nonsense or or something misleading. That was fun and I really enjoyed it. But I, I knew that if I carried on writing in that vein, then people would start saying, Well, who are you? You really don't know anything about this. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a career I wanted. I didn't want to be that. And and to be honest, you know, the success of it was such a, a boon in my life that I thought, well now I don't have to write <laughs> this because you know this will make me comfy enough for the next few years and I can go back to writing the sort of things I want to write. So actually what I really wanted to write at that time was a book about sport because I had I had had this strange period writing about sport for the Times newspaper in London. They'd asked me to do it when I didn't know anything about sport and it, so it had been a sort of comic um, gift really that I could go to um, sporting events and write my own thing about them. And I did that for about four years. And so after each Shoots and Leaves, what I really wanted to do was write about my experiences and what I had learned, you know, about sport in the course of doing that job. And that, of course, sold sort of virtually nothing. And my publisher didn't even want to do it. And, um, but I'm really glad I wrote it. I think it's, it was something that was necessary for me to do. And that was my last non-fiction book, really. And since then, I've been writing novels again. And um, so it was a, it was a, 
it was very, I mean, it was great to have success. It was a wonderful thing to be so successful, but it's also quite surreal because you find yourself in situations that you just think, I want to laugh, you know, that I, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> no, people, I remember, you know, the first time I went to New York with Eat Chicks and Ears, the first day I went on the Today Show, you know, and um, that, and, you know, going into this studio in Rockefeller Plaza, you know, and, and then when I went back to talk, talk again, you know, the next time I went there, Katie Couric said, um, oh, hi, Lynn. <laughs> this is so bad. This is so bad. But, um, but you know, it, 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 it was fun. It was fun that it happened, but you, I just had to keep my feet on the ground. I had to keep saying, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. This isn't what's going to happen for the rest of your life. You know, this is just now, and, and it's, 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 it's lovely, but don't read too much into it. So it was, um, it, it was a, interesting time but now with the states you know i mean i love i had a wonderful time going around the states i think i think I did three tours you know going to these wonderful bookshops around the states well, that's lovely you know and i'm always saying oh i've been there you know when they come up on tv or news or something oh i went there i had a marvelous event there you know people were lovely so um i do i did enjoy that but it was as you probably know i mean it really is very strenuous doing all that as well it takes it out of you and now I sit at home a lot more. I'm at home a lot with my lovely dogs and and I just write my books. And I, I honestly, that's that's um I'm very happy about that. I think that's that's more what I've always wanted to do. You also mentioned that you wrote uh, radio uh, comedies, radio plays. Yeah. What's that like? I think it's lovely. It's it's a it's a great thing writing. I've never written television and I and I, I don't know whether I'd I don't know. I don't know if I'd like the world of it, you know, and how you, you know, I don't know. I've never, anyway, I've never done it, but radio is, is sort of, it's so much smaller, you know, in every way. Uh, and it's absolutely lovely to write because if you like, if you want people to read your, when you're reading you, they want, I like the idea that people can hear your words in their, in their heads, really. I, I, I know some people read without hearing words, but I don't. I'm a very, audio sort of person I or oral you know so when I'm reading I do hear the rhythms and I hear the sounds of the words and the shapes of the words and the rhythms and and I really so when you write for radio that's that comes very high on the list really is how how to write dialogue and stuff that with with the right sort of rhythms and so on so um and then you turn it over to actors and a director and so on and the so for the Steen series that we did years ago, I mean, no, I knew those actors terribly well by the end, and you just know what you can write that will they will do well and what they'll enjoy doing. That was lovely. And I've also written quite a few stories now that I wrote for myself to read on BBC Radio 4. Um, and they're going to come out as an audio book next year, actually, which I'm very pleased about, because they were, I wrote those for me to read. And knowing my own limitations, you know, in that I can't read dialogue, not very well or not very convincingly. I, you know, I like a long sentence that has a sort of pathetic sort of ending or whatever, you know, those sorts of things, knowing your own style. So that was, that was really lovely. I, lo I do love working for radio, but it's, it's sort of the, the, the business of getting things commissioned is is very byzantine and stupid and you you 
have to put forward an idea through somebody and they put it forward for somebody else and then they might come back to you and ask for something else and then they might say oh we've got rather a lot about that at the moment so no and um it, you know it's just it, it's it's quite unsatisfying there's no sense <clears throat> you can't have a career um in radio at all because it's it, it every idea is judged against things that you have no control over so you can't you know great experienced writers great experienced ma radio makers are always starting from square one every time they put something in and that's just demoralizing after a bit so i've sort of stopped recently if someone came to me and asked me to do something i might do it but i i don't want to generate ideas and and you know as i say you don't have any control over what will be what will be accepted with those stories they did come to me and they asked me to write 10 stories um as a block to do week after week and i thought well that's hard <laughs> actually coming up with 10 separate short stories set in the same place and i invented the place and i invented the people and i wrote, did find 10 themes that i really wanted to write stories you know these are like 12 minutes or something so again you have to choose a subject that is that that will be you can deal with satisfactorily in that time so it will generally be as most short stories are a, a, a moment of revelation or a moment of of clarity something like that um in someone's life and then um you know we recorded all of those and then they said well another 10 would be nice <laughs> for the following year and uh oh my lord so in the end i did write 26 of of these short stories but uh, you know and then they said we'll, we'll have another 10 and at that point i thought well no i don't think i can do that again i just can't do that again it's it's it was a, an extraordinary amount of uh brain <laughs> involved in doing it but it was very flattering that they that they did ask for them but so it was months of work um to um and of course the pay was appalling but there we are that's that's you know we, we um we are used to that <laughs> yes. you, but we're very lucky to have it here i mean in the states you don't have so much you know radio drama do you you don't have the you know the sort of um um you know the bbc is is takes care of that sort of thing you know speech speech radio with stories and stuff to a, to a degree and that is very lovely to have it there and I, I, would, I would miss it terribly um not to have it so the, the closest thing we have is podcasts there are some people creating uh dramas for podcasts well that's great but yeah. they're not not on the radio really at all no no but podcasts would be perfect for it i've always wondered why you know the well i mean audiobooks do terribly well don't they because people have such long journeys and and listening to a book uh, is a, is a wonderful way of passing the time, I think. And radio drama, similarly, you know, is a, is a lovely way to um, to you know to travel. <laughs> My favourite thing is ever if someone has said, um, "Oh, I was driving somewhere and I was listening to one of you." I had wrote some monologues years ago that were for individual actors to do half hour monologues. We had fantastic people. We had um, you know really good actors do them. And, you know, if anyone said, oh, I was driving somewhere and I arrived before it finished. So I sat outside to listen to the end of, you know, and that's, that's, that's sort of highest tribute you can get, really. If somebody 
sort of didn't think, oh, well, that was quite good, and then stopped, <laughs> just get out of the car. Um, they actually sort of bothered to listen to the end. That's very nice. Yeah. How does the approach to writing a story that's meant to be read aloud and, and heard by someone differ mm -hmm. the approach, approach to writing something that's meant to be read on a page or a screen? That's a really good question. I think it. I think it's really important as well that that um, you do think about what the listener experience is, because there is a, you know, there some things that are put on the radio are not suitable. They're not suitable because they are too mightily in some way. You know, they rely a lot on, you know, involved imagery or something. Um, I think you do have to think about it being quite a direct medium, and. Uh, so I do, I think about it quite a lot. And also, you know, sound, you know, sound being an important part of, of it. Um, the way that you want to, the cadences of sentences and so on should vary and so on. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's more like music, really. You're thinking about it musically as well. And we, ha I used to teach a course with someone with radio and what we used to start with was an exercise which actually I think people took it you know didn't quite understand the point of this so perhaps it wasn't a clever exercise after all but we will put people in pairs and say well here's a you know a feature of this house that we're all in one person write a description of it and one person stand in front of it and describe it to the microphone and of course well the the writerly one could be as brilliant as anything, but it's never as good. <laughs> it's never as interesting to the listener as the person standing in front of the, you know, the picture and, and describing it, even if they were doing it quite poorly. And there's something, you know, that was a sort of lesson in in what radio is about, really, in that it's it it comes from the person. It doesn't come from the words. It's it's in the tone of voice. It's in the intention. It's in from the and it's in the immediacy of it. And um, so I think that's that's sort of so you do have to think about it quite differently, um, and as I say, you know, from my point of view, um, not having so much dialogue <laughs> because when I read dialogue, I don't I don't really do it very well. So I, even when I wrote it, I would then rewrite, rewrite, rewrite to get rid of as much dialogue as possible and put it all into indirect speech, so that I I could I could you know put over the um, the sense but without embodying a character because I'm not an actor and I couldn't do it but it's a really good question I, mean, I don't think I do know the actual answer but I know what I like and I and I think that we we learn from doing it um, but I, I, I do think that, that it is to do with that the fact that you haven't got to you haven't got to um, overcome any barriers you know the word on the page there is a bit of a barrier you know the person has to do has to put some effort into reading they don't have to put any effort into listening. They sort of to put their earphones in or headphones on or... Mm, it's there. <laughs> it's in your head. You know, you don't have to, you know, sort of, you don't have to worry about missing anything or having to go back to read it again or anything. It's, it's, it, it all goes in. So it's a great, it, I think doing what you're doing is, is absolutely lovely. I mean, I think it's, uh, oh, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> A bit of immediacy you didn't need uh, with the dog, um, but uh, you know it's it's a really good thing I think doing podcasts. Now, um, are your stories available on uh, BBC Four now? Because I, I think you can actually stream that in the US. I don't think they are at the moment. They did repeat some 
not that long ago, which might mean they might be on something called Sounds, um, BBC Sounds. I don't know if they're available abroad. I don't know. You know, sometimes they block um, people listening outside. But they certainly will be in the new year, which is quite a long way off, but in 2021, they're going to be on Audible and, you know, various platforms um, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, an audio, as an audio file. Um, so they, they will come out and they were, they were caught. The, the place that I set them was on the South coast of England, a little bit, a little bit along from Brighton, not far. Um, and it's where the Meridian goes through, it starts at Greenwich, you know, the Greenwich mean time is where time begins, you know, is uh, at Greenwich. So, um, and the Greenwich Meridian goes, through, goes, leaves the British coast at a place called Peacehaven. So I set the stories there and I called the place Meridian Cliffs. And the, and the series was called Life at Absolute Zero, because the zero is what the, um, is what the degrees are there, you know, the longitudinal degrees is, is zero at this point. So that's what it'll be called. <clears throat> and while we're waiting for 2021 for the audible version of the <laughs> stories, in the meantime, we can read about the Constable Twitten and Company because that'll Yay. be on sale from November 10th. I think so. Yes, yes, I'm very pleased. It's out in the UK, you know, um, comes out earlier in the UK. Um, November, yeah, in um, in the US, and um, oh, I'm very pleased. It's you know they do they're lovely. The people I deal with in New York with uh, Bloomsbury are absolutely super, and they've been very, very kind and very enthusiastic about the books. So because it takes a while for an for a series to get going, I suppose. I mean, some people, you know, I'm sure have a great success with the first one or something. I'm definitely building up with these. <laughs> I think that. Um, you know, getting reviews and getting a sort of uh, head of head of steam or whatever is um, is something I'm quite interested in. It seems slow to me because I'm I'm a bit impatient by nature and I'd like it all to be happening already. But you know, I've just written the fourth book; it'll come out next year, and you know, you just have that sort of sense of continuity, which is which is really lovely. And um, and just gradually hope to build up more readers who enjoy them. So we're very. It, it'll be. Um, it'll be lovely to get this third one published because I think. I think in a way it sort of lifts off with the third one. Does the fourth book have a title yet? Yes, it's called See the Bunny Run, and um, which is there's a, there's a character who is a uh, a sort of street character who works for Mrs. Goines, and he stands with a he he's a sort of peddler, and he stands with his tray of little clockwork rabbits. And he says to be, he says to people, see the bunny run, see the bunny run, see the bunny jump, only half a crown. And he is standing, you know, doing his cockney patter with these bunnies. And um, and his disappearance is the beginning of the book. Um, he he disappears. So so it's called See the Bunny Run. Now, of course, I have an image in my head of the Energizer bunny murdering someone. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say that when I was writing the book because obviously that could have been, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the went. But luckily, I've already finished, so so I won't incorporate that now. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> and where where can readers uh, connect with you or find out more about you? Do you have a website or are you on social media? 
I don't, I don't really do social media, no, but I have got a website. Um, I should update it more often. I don't think it's even got the new book up yet, but it's, um, it's called lintrust.com. And there are some columns and, and various things on it. But I do have also a newsletter, which I do do. Um, so people can sign up to a newsletter. And then um, I will, that, that I do, you know, when there's something coming up, I will write to people and, and say, which is, I think, an, um, just nice. We get sort of nice feedback from that. Um, it is so lovely that, you know, I mean, I used to be a journalist and I was, I was um, you know, I had a lot of contact with readers. As a novelist, much less so. You know, you don't know much. But while I was writing the, the, the fourth book, <clears throat> I wrote, you know, sometimes you, you, well, I'll tell you something about, it was very funny about the um, Murder by Milk Bottle, actually. That would be a good one. I was doing a, a, a talk. And the book wasn't finished. I'd, in fact, I just started really. And I had various th themes about milk <laughs> in my head. You know, I knew that was all happening. And I had this one, one little detail from the papers that I'd been, uh, thought, I must get this in. I just like it. And it was this little story about just before the bank holiday in August 1957, a, a road sign outside Eastbourne actually, it was, had been turned, been turned on the road so that people going to Eastbourne would go off down a side road and, um, and it ended at a sort of village pond or something. And, and it was just a funny little story and it didn't, they didn't have the conclusion to it, but I thought I really must get this into a story. So when I was talking to this audience about my process, I just said, well, I'm going to abuse this thing, you know, and I don't know how really, I, I just want to bring it in. And as you know, it comes in very early in the book and it's, it's um, where someone is murdered um, at, the, at the crossroads sort of thing. But I, and I, so I told them this story about the, you know, the sign that had been turned and there was a general laugh and it was nice. And then afterwards, a woman came up to me and said, you know that story you told about, <laughs> about the sign, the road sign? That was me, she said. And that was in 1957. <laughs> so she was about 10 years older than me. And she, she said she and her friends had turned this road sign and they got into lots of trouble and it had been in the papers. And, and you know, that is just gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, I just, <laughs> um, absolutely lovely. Um, and, and when you do have contact with, you know, I mean, people give you so much back, you know. And I was writing, I wrote a column in a, in a, in a sort of paper that's given away in a supermarket recently. It's very, very good supermarket. does a very good paper. And, um, and I wrote about in the fourth book, I have this system in shops, you know, in, in, in old fashioned shops, they had these um, cash delivery systems that would be instead of, you know, everyone having a till in each department where they took the money and, and so on, they would put the money into a canister and shoot it across the room to, a, you know, to a, someone behind a, behind a, a screen, you know, who was the cashier. Or they put money in the canisters and put them in tubes in the wall and they were sucked away to the tube room where somewhere the, the cashiers would, you know, take the money, put the change in, stamp the, stamp the sale note, send it back in another tube. And so I was writing about how I was researching that. And I got a wonderful letter from an old lady who said, I worked in a shop in Liverpool and you know, it was my job to post these tubes back, these canisters back up the tubes. Um, and that's just lovely. You know, there's nothing nicer than thinking you, you've, you've had that contact with someone and it's been so creative, you know, it's lovely. 
<clears throat> anyway, so luckily, 1957 is within living memory for some people. So it's, um, it's very nice to get that. She also said she worked in the mantle department, and which was coats and dresses. And I've never heard that expression before, ever, mantle, the mantle department. So I was able to put that in, you know, with an explanation. With people say, what's that? in the book because it's such a nice detail you know from that time yes but i think man dresses were called mantle i, I went on a tour of uh, colonial williamsburg and so mm -hmm. talk about all the the old terms for dresses and i think someone did mention that did they yeah well, very interesting books, but i didn't yeah. realize that they kept that all the way into the 1950s <laughs> yeah yes yeah no it's lovely so i do i do love that um so if I did social media, that might happen more, I suppose. But I'm, I'm quite shy of it, um, and don't I don't actually want to spend the time on it. That's the um, I'm quite selfish with my time, and I know I would just get sucked in and never see daylight again. So I I, I don't dare get involved. I'm a bit obsessive by nature. I, I mustn't do it. No, we we would much rather have you writing uh, uh, radio stories and books than <laughs> uh, Twitter hole. So. <laughs> How are you getting on? I mean, I'd love to know how you're going, getting on. Uh, actually, I'm doing pretty well. I, I am trying to uh, limit my social media time because it is dangerous. You can mm -hmm. look up in two hours and pass and you're like, gee, how'd that happen? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> uh, trying to balance podcasting and writing and social media and my day job so it's, it's a bit of a juggling act but I think it's a lot to do a day job and because how many in here there are a few books now aren't there um i the, the fifth one came out this past march great well that's really good that's really good well done well done that's really really something do you, oh excuse me i'm just banging do you do you have any intention of writing full-time or or do you want to um do you want to carry on with the sort of doing both? Uh, both. I, I actually like my day job. Uh, I mean, it, it, it also mm -hmm. pays well, but I actually like it on top of that. So I, um, I'm i a civil servant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny to say that civil service pays well, but um, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a, also a physician. So that's mm -hmm. uh, And actually it's, uh, I'm meeting some interesting things. Like I'm, I'm here in Newport at the Naval War College because of my day job. So that's an opportunity I wouldn't have gotten um, mm, without the job. Yeah. So it's, mm. it's, it's actually kind of exciting. So I'm, I'm not ready yeah. to retire from that yet. No, well, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> when I look back at things I used to do, I can't believe how much I used to squeeze in. You know, deadlines, 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 writing a book, you know, deadline, 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 writing a book. Um, I. You know, I had so much on, and um, and I suppose you know, yes. Now I am so content just sort of to be working on one thing at a time. Really, I can't believe how much I used to squeeze in. Although twenty six stories plus novels doesn't sound like one thing at a time. No, that was That's actually all overlapping. That's quite true. That was all overlapping. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And recording them was hilarious. We, I, I would go into, um, uh, the, we were doing it through a, um, a local production company in Brighton that has a very um, sort of rather dilapidated property, really. And um, and I'm sort of sitting there, and and you could, if it was raining, you know, water would be sort of dripping to the studio, <laughs> making a sort of noise on. And we'd have to sort of cut around that or, or sort of someone came in and, and put a bucket under it. You know, it was just sort of, 
Um, so it was, uh, it wasn't glamorous. Um, and quite often, actually, my, my producer, who is British and lives in Wales, she would be actually in California in the winter. So we would have to record a time of day when we were both awake, which would be her first thing in the morning and my sort of, and before, you know, everyone went home here. So it would be five thirty, six o'clock at night when actually, you know, you're quite tired. <laughs> quite tired. Yeah. So I'd have to, um, and I always have a cough. Whenever anything important comes up, I develop a cough. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was funny. It was hilarious. But anyway, lovely as well. Sorry about that. That's my dog. Sorry. What kind of dog? Um, I've got two Norfolk Terriers and they're gorgeous. And I'm just about, my dogs don't know this yet, I'm about to get a third. I'm going to get a puppy quite soon, which will cause such a lot of up, out, outrage, I'm sure, in, in this house. But um, I'm very excited about her. I think she's going to be gorgeous. Um, but it'll be quite a big thing. <laughs> A lot more barking. Yeah, there'll be a lot more barking. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> oh dear. But anyway, it's it's very nice. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Lynn. Um, and thank your dogs for joining us too. <laughs> they, they won't be left out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but thank you very much. It's been very very nice to talk to you. Thank you, and um, and, and um, thank you to your listeners as well for listening. Yes, thank you listeners for tuning in to my chat with Lynn Trust, author of Murder by Milk Bottle, uh, available November 10th in the US. You've been listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks listeners for joining me for another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listened. Follow the podcast on social media. I'm on Facebook as The Cozy Corner Podcast and Twitter and Instagram as podcast underscore cozy. Now you can support me on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month and get a shout out on an episode of The Cozy Corner. Support at higher levels gains access to patron-only posts, thank you gifts, and giveaways. Sign up at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.